0: From the Medical Republic, I'm Francine Crimmins. This is The Tea Room. In all of the drug trials that happen around the world every week, researchers are likely leaving something out. It's the tracking of potential adverse events on male fertility. There could be a natural bias occurring in research which is ignoring drugs' effects on sperm. So why have we ignored sperm in science and how might studies better be designed to capture this data? Joining us again on the podcast is Bianca O'Grady, an acclaimed science journalist and author. Thanks for joining us, Bianca. Thanks so much. Nice
1: to be here, Frankie.
0: So let's talk about sperm and why it seems to be left out of the equation when it comes to drug trials. It's not really something that's on a lot of people's radars. I certainly hadn't even thought about it until I read your feature, which is going to be published soon in the Medical Republic. But could you tell us about recent event in the US, which set you off down this path of working out why male fertility rarely factors into clinical trials?
1: Yeah, so it isn't something that's really on the radar. I mean, you know, we often see headlines about drugs in pregnant women. And obviously, lately, the the conversation has been around um, COVID vaccines and can they safely be used in pregnancy or, you know, women in fertile age, but very, very, very rarely does a headline make any mention of um, male fertility in association with drugs. Um, so the reason this popped up on the radar was that there was a an oral um, jack inhibitor called filgotinib um, for rheumatoid arthritis, which was registered in the UK. But then when the manufacturer um, Gilead uh, applied to register it in the US, the um, Food and Drug Administration actually initially declined their application or, or required demanded some more information specifically on its um, potential effects on sperm counts and there had been some data suggesting it it did, um, the treatment was associated with significant reductions in sperm counts Um, and what was kind of weird is that in the end the the manufacturer actually withdrew the application for um, its approval not just in the US but also in Australia and that was before it had even released um the results of a study that was designed to investigate this exact effect and which didn't appear to show a significant difference in sperm counts um compared to placebo. So it was it was kind of weird, but you know, there was an editorial in Lancet rheumatology which then picked up on this and actually drew attention to the fact that um, the effect of drugs on male fertility is very, very rarely considered in clinical trials and um, that that was kind of noteworthy in itself. So I guess that's really where this story came from is, well, what what do we know about the potential effects of drugs on male fertility? And why is it that this is really a, a woefully neglected area of um, clinical trials?
0: And it can be hard, especially in some of those classes of drugs. I'm thinking drugs for cancer and some rheumatological drugs as well. Often they can be designed to suppress or to kill proliferating cells. Is the awareness there of how that could be a problem
1: yeah so cancer i guess is one field of medicine where because the drugs are so cytotoxic and because they are um, designed to kill you know Tumors, which are growing rapidly and proliferating rapidly, so you know that's actually one of the the few areas where um, the potential effects of drugs on male fertility have been considered more actively. So, um, and there are you know there are known to be particular agents. So, some of the alkylating agents like cyclophosphamide, um, those are known to cause um, to cause uh, um, basically to kill sperm and potentially lead to permanent dysfunction because. If you just kill off sperm, yeah, okay, that, that's a problem, but it's generally resolvable in the longer term because men are producing something like a 1,000 sperm per heartbeat, which is, you know, pretty amazing when you think about it. Um, and so, you know, those populations, so to speak, will regenerate. But if there's damage to the underlying um, stem cells that generate those sperm, then that can potentially lead to to longer-term and permanent dysfunction. So... You know, some of those old, you know, I guess older uh, cancer agents are known to be spermatotoxic, Um, but... There, there are a lot of um, newer drugs, and um, in particular, the checkpoint inhibitors, which are the immunotherapy class of drugs that have really revolutionised the treatment of a lot of, um, well, particularly kind of tumours like melanoma, lung cancer. Um, there's not really much data on the impact that those have on um, male fertility, and that's, you know, that's a real area of concern. So, so for example, there was a study that Australian researchers did. And they looked at the preclinical and clinical trial data from 32 new oncology drugs. Um, and Most of these were checkpoint inhibitors. And these were approved in Australia or the US between 2014 and 2018. And not one of those 32 drugs had any human data on reproductive effects, either in men or women um so and and what was even i guess potentially alarming is that when they looked at the preclinical animal data um in terms of fertility and there was animal data for 20 on fertility for 23 of those drugs nine of those drugs caused male infertility in animals and three caused female infertility and yet there was no actual human data on this um that was presented in terms of their registration or clinical trial data so you know, that there was an indication of potential fertility effects in that preclinical data, but that's sort of where, you know, it just stopped at that point. And that does certainly raise raise some alarms.
0: The fact that you would have a finding like that in an early phase study and then not follow it up, yeah, that does sound quite concerning. Do you think that that reflects an element or a cultural bias in science or society that perhaps this isn't something that's on the radar of the male patient? And if patients aren't asking about the impact of a certain drug on their fertility at the treatment phase, that it is isn't important right the way through drug research?
1: Yeah, it's a real mix of things. So, I mean, it's it's kind of weird because, uh, you know, most of the time we're used to hearing about clinical trial bias in favour of men, you know, in terms of a lot of the kind of earlier cardiovascular studies were overwhelmingly populated by men and uh, so you know hence that kind of lack of understanding of what heart disease looked like in women for example Um, you know and that is slowly being corrected in the clinical trial world but um, you know this is one of those few situations where yes there is actually a a kind of considerable neglect of male fertility in the clinical trial landscape Um, and there are potentially a a few reasons for this so one of them is well sperm you know women are born with all of the the eggs that they will have for their lifetime so those those are kind of there um, so there is i guess a potential for damage permanent damage of you know a woman's entire kind of um egg stash so to speak it's probably not the right word but we'll go with it um, and I guess also in women, there are there's a lot of concern about uh, potential teratogen. Oh, I can never say this word, teratogenicity. Um, so causing birth defects, essentially, uh, you know, and uh, the specter of thalidomide hangs very heavy over their lands- that landscape. And so there's a lot of concern about the potential for um, effects on female fertility that might then be carried over into the offspring. Whereas with men, um, you know, as I said, we're producing copious quantities of or numbers of sperm all the time. They're constantly, it's a constantly regenerating population. And so as long as the underlying, you know, um, sperm creation mechanism isn't harmed, theoretically, the you know, sperm counts can recover or sperm motility can recover. That's not always the case, obviously. And, and also male fertility is more than just sperm. Um, you know, there's also the hormone influences, there's the, you know, the mechanics of, of erections and all of those things that can also affect fertility. Um, but the other thing is it's actually oddly, it's quite difficult to study male fertility um, in terms of in a, in a trial context. Um, the first thing is that you would need ejaculate. You would need to actually have uh, sperm samples to study, um, which You know, for a lot of kind of volunteers in a clinical trial, that might be a a bit of a barrier to participation. The other thing is, you know, sperm counts, because men have something, you know, I think it was between 20 million and 200 million or something like that, you know, the, the range of what's considered healthy sperm counts is very, very wide. And so somebody, you know, a man might have a 50% drop in sperm count, but still be completely fertile. Um, And so there's not an obvious parameter that can be set that says this will lead to an impact on their ability to conceive a child, which ultimately is, you know, the the kind of the end measure. Um, And to, to see whether that effect has occurred, you need quite long term follow up, particularly if it's a, you know, um, a male of reproductive age who may not be in a partnership. I mean, how long do you follow that person up for? So really, the, a lot of these effects in men, uh, you know, don't become evident for a very, very long time. Um, and even then, you know, it takes two to tango. So how do you, you know, you've got to also then rule out the possibility that uh, the, his female partner um, is, has also got for potential fertility issues. So, you know, it's very, very difficult to have a kind of a blanket measure of male fertility that could be applied to all clinical trials across the board. Um, and so really, you know, a lot of these effects will only show up you know, 10, 20 years down the track when, um, you know, men try and conceive and then find they can't. And then we might, you know, that's when perhaps trends might start to emerge. But it's not common. Um, it's certainly not well known. It's something that's um, certainly, you know, doing this story. It's pretty apparent that it's not a regular topic of conversation um, in, in any, well, in, in very many kind of clinical consults with putting a, somebody on a, a treatment that, either is known to potentially have uh, effects on male fertility or, you know, it's one of those <laughs> known unknowns. So yeah, it's a really tricky area, but certainly one that I think there is now uh, growing awareness that it, it should at least be discussed, even if it is to say to someone, look, we're putting you on this drug um, you know in the case of cancer this this is a life-saving treatment so you know it's um it's not like you're not going to go on it but to say this may affect your sperm count or your sperm motility or your ability to have children in the near future but we don't know so that's a that's not an easy conversation to have
0: and on the treatment front is there any evidence to suggest that men are offered, you know, cryopreservation at the same rates that women are?
1: Um, again, I think in cancer, it's uh, it, there is more awareness of it, um, but it's you know dependent on men being able to access those uh, sperm banking facilities, which are not available. In many places so you know if you live in a rural or regional area that's a lot harder um, you know but that is i mean i guess that is the good news is that cryopreservation of sperm is a pretty straightforward thing it's it's different i guess probably a little bit harder for women to freeze eggs because you have to have those eggs extracted and um you know there's there's kind of quite a lot of treatment that has to happen to enable kind of freezing of eggs you know, cancer drugs aren't the only drugs obviously as we started off talking about it was a rheumatology drug that had this uh, potential effect on sperm counts and I I don't think there'd be very many rheumatology consultations where male fertility and potential effects of treatments on male fertility would come up so that's sort of another tricky one you know if you're particularly with a rheumatology drug if you've got somebody with you know ankylosing spondylitis are they're going to be on this drug for a long long period of time so um that's a tricky side of it and I guess the other area is if you're treating pre-pubertal boys if they're undergoing treatment with these sorts of um, drugs that potentially might affect you know the I guess their kind of growth and, and um, maturing of their reproductive facilities you may not be able to get a sperm sample to freeze for later you know later kind of fertility so you know that's a whole other challenge for treating pediatric cancers and potential effects on fertility but I guess you know the difference with cancer and rheumatology is cancer you've you know there's a fairly high chance that if they don't have any treatment that they, their disease will kill them. Uh, rheumatology obviously there's um, there is that that risk but perhaps it's not as as acute for a lot of rheumatological, rheumatological conditions but it is still you know, there's a reason why they're being put on this treatment and their life would be pretty miserable if they weren't on it. So, you know, it's a kind of balancing up competing risks in a, in a sense.
0: So what role do drug regulatory authorities, the TGA here in Australia or the equivalent overseas have in ensuring that potential adverse events for male fertility are picked up?
1: Well, again, I mean, you know, this is this is a challenge for regulators to tackle for the, same, for the very reason that what parameters do you choose as a, as a measure of, of fertility, male fertility? And, you know, the suggestion has been, look, even if you did baseline you know, sperm assessment, so basically a sperm count and sperm motility, if you did that as a baseline measurement in clinical trials, and, and particularly, I guess, you don't want to be doing this with every single clinical trial, so you would target this or the suggestion is that you target this at drugs uh, that are being used in males of reproductive age and perhaps where there is a biologically plausible mechanism by which these drugs could affect sperm function you know that might at least pick up if there are some obvious safety signals associated with any kind of drug in terms of effects on male fertility whether we'll see that happen I don't know but certainly you know the situation with with Phil Gottnib does suggest that perhaps this might be something regulators start looking at. It's certainly not something that they require at the moment, unless, you know, as in the case of forgotten, unless there's been some indication from other clinical trials that there might be a problem. But, yeah, certainly, that you know, the experts that I spoke to for this story were like, well, yes, this this isn't something that we can neglect just because it's hard. This does need to be considered because, um, you know, the potential effect is of... of, of very long-term effects on fertility is, you know, not trivial.
0: Bianca, thank you. Thanks, Frankie. If you've enjoyed the show, you might like to check out the rest of our journalism by visiting our website. That's medicalrepublic.com.au. On the site, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter and make sure you don't miss a minute, including our next episode of The Tea Room.